Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it very much. I'm sure Dolores did too, and so did everybody else. And uh, just like the words of the song said, that uh, when the Lord came into Gary's life, there was a big change came into his life, and he's had a great testimony ever since. And we really we like Gary. We've known Gary since, I'm not sure when. What year did you get saved, Gary? You remember? 75. Right around that time, same time. So we've known Gary since about 1975 or so. And he was a much younger guy then. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was. I'm, did I ever bring this picture in of Gary and Nelson together? I did bring that in. When you, so you saw him back when he was you know, much, much younger. Okay, so we'll get off of that subject. We already sang about birthdays and everything. We're glad you're here this morning. And for all those that are visiting with us, for Abraham, Daisy, and Hannah that are here with us this morning. Hannah's enamored with uh, Mary, maybe? Or, yeah. <laughs> Now, that is one of the smilingest, the cutest smiles on a girl that you ever want to see in your whole life, is that little girl right there. She's something else. Okay. So, all those things that we talked about and praying for Chris that didn't happen last week, well, some did, some didn't, you know, and that's all because she made the decision to have this stuff done in Chattanooga. She's getting a second opinion, going to Jana's uh, OBGYN doctor, and that's all starts Monday. So everything's kind of been set back for a little bit until we see what's going to happen with all these tests and everything. So we appreciate your prayers for her. Okay, I was going to try to make up some joke about wearing ties this morning and how important that was, but I decided to lay off because Jim Butler came in with no tie on. I tell you, but I couldn't think of anything, so I'm just going to let it pass and don't even worry about it, okay? Nobody else is going to know. <laughs> but we're glad you're here, Jim. All right, we're going to continue on with our un unnumbered and unknown, at least. They're only numbered up to now, so I've got three on uh, a series on being a slave of Christ. I don't know when it's going to end. It'll just end when I get done. Uh, dealing with everything I feel like I need to deal with this. To me, it's a pretty broad subject and a very deep subject. And it, it, as I have spent a considerable amount of time studying over this thing, it has really brought an, to my own heart a, a change in a lot of the, the way I view some things in Scripture. Uh, not so much that it's changed doctrine, but it's just intensified it and added a measure of depth that just uh, has somewhat overwhelmed me uh, and my own heart at least as I've considered the importance of seeing the slave-master relationship. And what I want to talk about this morning is that word master or what we often have termed translated uh, lord. You because what you'll find in, when you study these things is you cannot talk about a slave without talking about a lord or a master. They just go together. Now, it is possible to talk about a lord or a ruler or a master without having a slave. That's very possible. And there are some cases where 
that's on record, even right here in the scriptures, but I don't want to take the time to look that up this morning. It's not that important or germane to our discussion, but the fact of a slave having a master is. And we did note uh, already that though there were many kinds of slaves, uh, jobs or occupations that they held, whether it was a physician or a doctor or a miner or a field worker or a vine dresser or uh, a domestic slave in the home or whatever it was, and whatever degree or variation in liberties they may have had or responsibilities, there was one single common denominator for every slave, and that was they all had an owner. Each one had a master or a lord. And so we find these terms belong together, and that's what we want to talk about. Of course, the the word for uh, slave is our familiar word doulos, and then another familiar word for lord is kurios, and they go together. Now, the word kurios can be used in different contexts, uh, meaning slightly different things. And one of the common ones, if you'll turn to Acts 16, we'll just take a look at one here just to show you one of those things. It's translated Lord most frequently. It's translated Master. It's translated as Owner. Um, So it has some various uh, contextual things and ways in which we can see that word rendered. But in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, um, 30, a very familiar verse where where the Philippian jailer brought... uh, Uh, Paul and was it Silas out and he said sirs what must I do to be saved and this is another translation of the word kurios only here it's sirs if we were going to translate it the way we are accustomed to reading it we would say or the jailer would have said lords what must I do to be saved but it was used as a a term to recognize the way we would when we want to uh, acknowledge a person uh, and a male, of course, we would call them sir as a way of showing some respect in a formal situation, and that's what he's referring to here, sirs, lords, kurios in the plural. But we find then that this term, kurios and lord, are you, and the word doulos or slave are used together in many different Uh, situations throughout the New Testament. Um, Originally, the word kurios was an adjective, and it meant one having power. And then, over time, it became a noun and is used exclusively that way in the New Testament. It's always used as a noun. And so when you talk about a kurios, Inherent in the meaning of the word or implied is that here's a person who has authority or power uh, in their position. And, of course, one of the most common things that you find in the New Testament, or I should say really in, in New Testament times, culture, was the head of the household or the householder. He was Lord. Even uh, I think I've shared with you before, um, we've mentioned this, that uh, in, over in is that First Peter 4 or 5, there where um, Peter says that 
uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. It was even a common designation for a wife to refer to her husband as Lord. And we have a guy at BIMI who, and he's been here and sang for us, Robert Meyer. His wife called him Turkey one day. Now, they were just yik-yakking back and forth, you know, and she said something about, hey, Turkey, you know. Again. He said, well, Abraham called his wife, or uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. And she says, okay, Lord Turkey. <laughs> so, didn't go over so well, at least for Robert. But this designation is even familiar and common in the Old Testament. But of course, what we're getting to eventually here is the designation for Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, and of course, there are, there are references prior to the resurrection of Christ where he was designated as Lord. And these are, I, I think, are interesting here. Turn to Mark chapter 11, if you would. Mark chapter 11. And I think it's important to, to know that he was, you know, when this or how this whole idea came about uh, to refer to Jesus as Lord or Master. In Mark 11, if I get the mark, I'd be in good shape. I'm way off. I was over here in John. All right. Mark 11 and verse 3. There he says, And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him. And straightway he will send him hither. And of course, this is Jesus giving instructions telling them what to tell this person when they came to ask for this, uh, this colt that Jesus could ride on and just say, well, the Lord has need of him. And so he referred to himself as Lord there. Then if you'll just turn over a page or two, I have to do about three pages in, in my Bible because it's in 12, chapter 12, verse 30, um, 35. Mark 12, 35, where Jesus answered and said, While he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calls him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. You get the idea, you'd think there, there's a little humor that when Jesus had these so-called religious authorities trapped, you know, they found that a uh, little humorous. But they were glad to hear of the Lord. But the point of the whole passage is, is that prophetically speaking, David spoke of the Lord, L, capital L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. And, of course, in the Septuagint, 
they used the word, the Greek word kurios, to refer to him as Lord. So there it was in a prophetic sense. And then we see that, and of course he's quoting from Psalm 110 and, and verse 1 there, uh, one the most common quoted psalm in all the New Testament. Now turn over to Acts chapter 2. So we find there then that this was all prior to the resurrection. And he was spoken of prophetically even in the Old Testament as Lord. But over in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection, after his ascension, and the Holy Spirit coming down on the day of Pentecost, and we have all these... uh, signs and wonders and speaking in various tongues taking place. Verse, of course, and they were wondering what's going on here. Are they drunk or what is it? And verse 16, Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. These very things that have been taking place. He says, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my uh, spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my slaves and on my female slaves, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I shall show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now, all of this came about because he said, I was going to pour out of my spirit in those days. And uh, Peter, Peter is simply saying here that Joel, in this passage, what we're seeing evidence there is what you saw today, a great and mighty working of pouring out of God's spirit. And so then in verse 21, he says, It shall come to pass that whosoever, this is Joel speaking, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The name of the kurios shall be saved. Look down in verse uh, 24. When he talks about him whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it, For David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. And of course, again, in the rest of the Psalm 16 that he's uh, speaking from here, prophetically again, mentioning that Christ is Lord. But he makes the comparison here, David saying this, couldn't be saying this of himself, because we all know that he's not been resurrected from the dead. He's still in the grave. There's only one conclusion from all of this. Jesus must be the Messiah. That's the summation of this whole argument. And so when you get down to verse 32, he says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore... Being by the right hand of God exalted, that is, he's been now resurrected, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, this pouring out of the Spirit, which he now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens. He hasn't been resurrected. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, and we have a repeat again here of Psalm 110 verse 1, 
being used by Peter to confirm that this Jesus is Lord. Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. He is in a place and a position of honor where he deserves to be called Lord. And so when we sing that song or that little chorus, He is Lord, we're making a declaration about who He is. When we say, and you know, I don't know what it was about 20 or 25 years ago, it was really popular to go around saying, Jesus is Lord, and you had these little pins you put on your lapel, Jesus is Lord. And when we say that, We need to understand that it's far more than just a little cliche, but it's a declaration. It's an acknowledgement of who Jesus of Nazareth, the one born in that stable in Bethlehem, is the Messiah. And he is master, Lord, sovereign, supreme, ruler, owner. And if we even wanted to stoop so low, we could say, sir. But he's far more than that. So, when we say these things, if we say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then we need to understand what we're saying about ourselves, what we're telling the world, what we're declaring as a testimony to others around us. And I want to enumerate just a few of those things here in what time we have left. Number one. To say that Jesus is Lord means we're expressing our faith in that this Jesus, as we've said, the one born in Bethlehem, the historical Jesus, is the long-awaited Messiah. In other words, he's not just some ethereal, you know, God in the heavens as the pagans in this day and age worshipped one that nobody had ever seen, one that no one knew anything about other than just they talked about him, they worshipped him, they made sacrifices to him and so on, and they called them gods or lords. They referred to their heathen gods in the same way they referred to Jesus. Lord so-and-so, whatever god it was. And of course, in the Roman culture, there was a multiplicity of gods, and in Greek culture as well. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're making a declaration, a claim that this Jesus that was born in that stable that we celebrate at Christmas is the very Jesus that's declared here in the scriptures. He is the one that God promised would come. Over in John chapter 20 and verse 28, very familiar passage to us, a post, post-resurrection appearance. And here, when we say Lord, we're acknowledging the deity of Jesus Christ. You remember when Thomas appeared before the Lord. And in verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. He acknowledged him. 
as for who he was. He was not just God, but he was Lord to Thomas. Thomas was acknowledging who the Lord Jesus Christ was, the, ascent, the, the, the resurrected Messiah, and he was acknowledging that he had authority, that he was a master over him. And that's why Jesus told him, he said in verse 27 at the end there, he says, be not faithless or unbelieving, but believing in what? The resurrection. That's why he said, see the print of the nails in my hands? Be believing, Thomas, not unbelieving. And once he saw and believed, oh boy, my Lord and my God. That was a strong claim to the Lord's authority over Thomas and his life. Now, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 1. And this is, we'll just look briefly at this one. In Revelation chapter 1, all we're acknowledging is that here is that Jesus Christ was victorious over death. Yes, he did rise from the dead, but there was a victory in that death. Romans chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18. I've had watery eyes all week here, so forgive me, I pray. For that, I have to wipe my eyes several times probably here. In verses 17 and 18, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So he, he was the victor over death. But not only did he just rise from the dead, he conquered death. And that's an important thing for us to know. In conquering death, he has the power to give life. That was Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. Now, if you'll turn back with me to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter uh, 1, we're going to have to break into a long sentence here in verse 19. And we'll just begin reading there. It says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world or this age, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things. Now, you'll see there in that passage, he not only was raised from the dead, he was exalted in the heavenlies to a place and a position of authority and power that far exceeded all the heavenly principalities, not just those of us on earth, but all of creation, all things, he says in verse 22. Gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, I'm just going to mention it here, and maybe we'll come back to this another time, but when you consider the lordship of Jesus Christ, 
you know, we're always keeping in mind the fact that this is a complementary term to slave. It is not the opposite of slave. The opposite of being a slave is freedom. It, they are complementary terms, correlatives. They belong together. They are so interrelated, you can't speak of one without speaking of the other. And so when we're establishing this morning the lordship of Jesus Christ and that he is the head and over all things, keep in the background of your minds the idea of who he is. What is he lord over? And he says concerning this, he's head over the church, which is his body. And we saw back in the very first message that one of the terms used to describe slaves is the word bodies. And we even see it in, even in the King James uh, translation that the word body is, or bodies, plural, is translated slaves back in Revelation 18. Coupled with that, you see implied here that if a slave is a body, Jesus is the head of the body. He is the authority. Now we'll look at, uh, so we're, we're then proclaiming his victory and his uh, conquering of death and his exaltation to a position of power and authority. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll look here at what we are saying when we, when we say Jesus is Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And then if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you'll be ready for the next one. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, what? the Lord. Paul didn't have to say that. He could have just said, we preach Christ Jesus. But he said, no, we preach Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. And so we see the complementary terms used together of Lord and slaves. If you look back to, of course, so honestly then, what you're really doing, if you say, well, Jesus is my Lord, then you're proclaiming the message that you are what? His slave, the complementary term. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 now. He says, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So when you say Jesus is Lord, you're acknowledging that you're accountable to him, that he's going to come to be your judge. And believe me, every slave was accountable to his owner. Any wrong done had a proper recompense to it. And any good done might have a proper recompense. They might receive praise. They might, whatever, get a reward. Or it might be just as Jesus said, we're only doing our duty as a slave. 
And so we have no right to really expect anything beyond that we were dutiful to our master. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 5. I thought that was really fun. You had 2 Corinthians 4, 5, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 2 Peter 4, 5. I don't know if that means anything. But again, we find over there, Peter says in 4, 5, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? And there are those, along with me, who, don't, who believe that that's not just talking about the living and the dead, the physically alive and the physically dead, but the spiritual living and the spiritual dead. In other words, all men will give account to him. As a matter of fact, if we turn to Philippians chapter 2, you remember in that passage there, in the, uh, the self-humiliation of Christ, or what's called the kenosis, which is the Greek word, hard to, hard to comprehend this whole idea of Jesus, who he says there in verse 6, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a slave. That was the form or the idea of what Jesus did in his life when he left heaven to become a man, was to be a slave and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Now there's the key word that you always need to understand with relation to a slave. And that's the word obedience. A slave, if there was anything that you would characterize a slave by, it was the fact that he was to obey. No questions asked. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Of course, I like, as one said, uh, Jesus had to be obedient to the death of the cross. If he was deity, how could he die otherwise? He had to obey death in order, he had to obey it in order to go to the cross to die. But notice in verse 10 then, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he, being in the form of God, became a slave and now exalted to the point where he is to be called Lord, and that makes us his slave, and we're to be as obedient as he. Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Romans 10, 9 is a familiar, pass, a familiar verse, at least, to most of us. But again, we look at the the context in which Paul is writing to the church at Rome here. He says in verse 8, The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, the spoken word, the rhema, 
which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There was an acknowledgment of the Lord Jesus. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If we confess with the mouth. So confessing Christ results then in a faith that is in a risen Messiah. And it says that you're staking your ultimate destiny on this one that the New Testament identifies as the Messiah, this Jesus that was born in Nazareth. And then back to 1 Corinthians and chapter 8. This is the last one. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And this is a strong, a strong passage as well in verse 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. He says there, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, <clears throat> as there be gods many, <clears throat> excuse me, and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. One Lord Jesus Christ. Many gods, many lords, but only one Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we testify, if we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and that we have confessed him as Lord, then that means we have turned from all other lords, so-called, all other gods, so-called, and anything else that would stand between us and God and have staked our claim solely on the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else, him alone. That's why uh, the Reformation uh, writers proclaimed, um, you know, uh, well, one of the things they proclaimed was sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. And the other one was, and I won't try to quote the Latin here, but it was Jesus alone. <laughs> no one else, him alone. And that's what makes him Lord. That's why I like that song. If we sing it with the correct understanding, he is Lord, he is Lord, he has risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when we acknowledge that, when we take into our heart that he is Lord of my life, and as some would explain it, and sits on the throne of my heart, then that should help us to see that we are then in a new position ourselves that of a slave. He's the Lord, we're the slave. We are to do obeisance to him and be obedient to him in, in everything. You know, if you look at the parables and 
I don't have time to look at those this morning, but we will later. You know, when, when you read in the parables about the slave-master relationship, explicit in all of them is the matter of obedience to the master in all of those. They had no personal rights of their own in terms of their legal responsibility as a slave. Now, we acknowledge that in practice, there was a recognition of the personhood of a slave. But when it came to the position of a slave, there were no rights. The owner had all the rights. He had everything. Jim Elliott, who I presume most of us know here, the one of the five missionaries that was martyred in Ecuador back in, I think it was 56, kept a journal. And back in October of 1948, 49, he wrote these words. He said, certain men in the group to whom Jude wrote had turned the grace of God into loose living, denying the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And you may remember that verse. This, he says, Jim Elliott says in his journal, this is a private thing now. He was writing, just recording his thoughts. He said, this was written for my day. For today, I hear of men preaching that grace means freedom to live unrestrained lives apart from any standard of moral purity, declaring, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Grace turned into licentiousness. Now, it's hard for me to express what he put in here, but he put an exclamation mark there. Grace turned into licentiousness, is what he was saying. Combined with this is the 20th century heresy that Christ is Savior only by right, Lord by option of the believer. This denial of the only Master and Lord preaches only half of his person, declaring only partially the truth as, as it is in Jesus Christ. The gospel must be preached with the full apprehension of who he is, the demanding Lord, as well as the delivering Savior. Denial of the Lordship of the Lord. I don't know how, it's kind of awkward right there. I don't know how else to say it. But he said that is disobedience. That was denial of the Lordship of the Lord. He said that is disobedience, which in any way makes, uh, excuse me, that is disobedience, which in any way makes pliable the requirement of God, for it makes God not God. In other words, you can't make it pliable. You can't bend it. There's no way to change it. If Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord. And it's amazing, back in the 1940s, he was writing, if you didn't know any better, you'd have thought he wrote it yesterday. In speaking about, the, of course, he could have wrote it, written that in any period of our Earth's history and pretty well come to the same conclusion and made it clear is that we cannot, as the adage says, have our cake and eat it too. We can't just take Jesus as our Savior and then go about our merry way and be happy that I'm going to heaven and think that everything's going to turn out okay. He is Lord, and it demands that we be subservient to him 
and understand that when he says we are his slaves, you know, and it helps us to understand why the early New Testament believers referred to themselves as we saw Paul and Peter and James and John did and Jude, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that as we continue on through these studies, it'll change your outlook as it did mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for the joy of being a slave of Jesus Christ. To whom else would we want to belong, Father, but to your Son? And we thank you that you have exalted him to your own right hand. And that for those who are willingly obedient to him and honoring to him, that one day you are going to exalt those as well. And they will be resurrected to places and positions of honor and glory and prestige and reward. And so we pray that as believers, as Christians, we would be willing to acknowledge that he is Lord, that we could sing such a song from the depths of our hearts and truly mean it, a heart that is wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.